Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the Uber podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on March 16th, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, and my partner in crime is... Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the <laughs> University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. This week on Twill, we're pleased to welcome Mark Hall, director of the Health Law and Policy Program, and the Fred D. and Elizabeth L. Turnage Professor of Law at Wake Forest University School of Law. Mark truly is recognized as one of health law and policy's leading scholars. He's an expert on private and public mechanisms for financing healthcare. Big welcome, Mark. Thank you. And I, it's with the highest uh, respect and, and, and honor that I say that it, it's a thrill to be invited by the click and clack of health policy. Thank you. <laughs> you, have, you, you. You have now been officially twilled. So let's start with a recent cost-benefit analysis that you and a colleague performed on potential Medicaid expansion for your home state, uh, North Carolina. Um, we're all used to claims, as you put it, quote, that Medicaid expansion is socially and morally compelling, regardless of the cost of the state, because of the obvious benefits this provides to sick and injured people in need of care. Uh, equally, I guess most of us have had some experience of provider or business stakeholders urging expansion on um, uh, relatively selfish economic grounds, uh, uh, which uh, certainly here in Indiana were eventually enough to overcome uh, very strong political positions to expansion. But until I read your piece, I admit I hadn't seen such a detailed analysis of the actual costs and uh, benefits. So could we start by uh, you sort of leading us through sort of the, the major moving parts uh, of your analysis and what you learned? Yes. Well, thanks, Nick. It, it's, um, I, I, I'm glad that uh, someone as familiar as you are with the, this area of policy and the literature sees something uh, of added value. And, and I, I worked with my research fellow to think hard about what we could do that would really help advance the conversation. Um, and what I saw in the literature was, you know, debates over the economic issues that, that you know, where, where the two sides weren't really connecting. Um, and so one side would say, well, gosh, during the first five years, you get, uh, you know, full uh, payment by the feds, uh, uh, you know, 100% of the expansion cost. It eventually drops to 90, but that's several years from now. We better grab all the money we can before it disappears kind of argument. Um, and then on the other side, you know, uh, the opponents were saying, well, yeah, but what happens if the feds renege on that uh, 90% deal and uh, we sign up now when it's uh, fully paid for, but they leave us holding, you know, uh, the whole bag or half the bag, you know, five or 10 years from now, you can't trust them to, you know, keep their, their deal. So I just thought, well, you know, these two are not, you know, connecting. So I tried to find what is a sort of an approach to these arguments that really uh, takes them on directly. So on this sort of positive in favor of expansion side, I thought, well, let's acknowledge that the um, federal support is going to graduate down to 90%, which is still very substantial, but less than 100%. And, uh, you know, 10% of um, many billions of dollars ends up being many hundreds of millions of dollars. And that's a lot of money uh, that takes away from, you know, schools and roads and other other needs or tax cuts or whatever the priorities are. Um, so uh, what can we say about those hundreds of millions that the state will still be spending? Um, and um, uh, on the other side, let's take seriously the notion 
that uh, a different administration could take a different approach and a different Congress could, you know, um, change their mind about the level of support um, and and what could be said about that, which I had not seen a really sort of sustained uh, response to that. So um, that's that's the approach I take. Uh, And so if if I should carry on to explain, I mean, on the sort of what are the actual costs to the state, uh, what I had seen in the literature was that uh, where there are any number of financial benefits, not to stakeholders, obviously there's there's financial benefit to self-interested groups such as hospitals that uh, have uh, less uh, uncompensated care, um, or, but um, uh, or to um, you know medical service suppliers and uh, others in the in, in the medical service industry, um, but. Uh, those are, you know, private economic interests. What about the, the state's own e- economic advantage? Um, and, and so I detailed uh, the, you know, the studies that others have done that use micro, sophisticated micro simulation economic models to say that if you infuse the economy with more, you know, federal spending that creates jobs, just like funding military bases, which, which we have a lot of in North Carolina and a lot of support for that, you know, those jobs uh, are taxpaying jobs and the, the produce money that people spend in the local economies, which generate ripple economic effects that themselves uh, expand the tax base. And so those, you can, you can directly model increases in, in um, tax receipts, not increases in tax rates, but increases in, 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 in tax, tax revenue under the existing rates, just because there's, there's a, there's a expanded tax base. And the folks who do that modeling, by the way, are the same ones who do it, uh, you know, with respect to military spending and other sort of more centrist or conservative type of, of, of interest. Um, uh, also, there are ways in which expanding Medicaid will reduce uh, pockets of expenditure uh, under current Medicaid. Uh, so if current Medicaid has, let's say, a 50% match rate, uh, in, in North Carolina, it's a 60, 65% match rate, but whatever it is, um, and, and moves those expenditures over to the 90% match rate, you have an increase of, you know, anywhere from 40 to, uh, or whatever, whatever the numbers are, 25 to 40% in your match rate goes up. Um, and so those have to do with, um, um, people become eligible now, um, in an existing category where they'll be moved over to the expansion group, um, um, sort of at the periphery of uh, uh, pregnancy eligibility or disability eligibility during waiting periods and um, sort of presumptive eligibility periods. Um, so those are small little slivers of the complicated Medicaid universe, but if you quantify them again, they add up to something significant. So doing those sorts of things, uh, summing all that up, uh, the state and local government portion of uncompensated care, you end up with a number that roughly uh, is equal to the amount uh, that the state would have to spend under its 10% match uh, level, and you say basically the state breaks even. So um, I, in a sense, uh, it's, it's, it's less compelling than uh, other economic arguments in favor of expansion that say, look at all this money we're losing, look at all this money we're leaving on the table, because it acknowledges that there is a cost, but it basically says the cost will be almost fully recouped from these other sources. I really did enjoy the observation. Perhaps it was only obvious to me in retrospect that since the citizens of the state were already paying for the national expansion, they may as well get their fair share of the benefits, and I just never really thought of it that way. Right. And so there's this notion that, well, we'll save on tax increases or contribute to reduction 
reduction in the deficit or whatever if we um, don't take the federal money. But the point is we don't reduce the taxes at all. Those are already in place. And so, um, uh, and true enough, you might reduce the federal deficit, but <laughs> you're doing that for the rest of the country. Well, you know, one thing that I wanted to pick up on, uh, Mark, was your analysis of the benefits. Because I think in a lot of health and education programs, um, there is a real emphasis on costs, but there's not really an effort to quantify the benefits. And I noticed that you have this discussion of secondary financial benefits, um, especially employment, which was something we covered uh, with our episode with Gwian McKee, um, who was actually looking at the opposite uh, effect of the Affordable Care Act. Essentially, he was saying that um, many of the cost-saving measures were going to be, um, the, the brunt of those would be borne by a lot of safety net uh, inner city hospitals. Um, and that essentially you would see a loss of jobs in many urban areas because of um, these cuts, but then that was to be counterbalanced by the jobs created, say, by Medicaid expansion. So one thing I was wondering is, you know, just in terms of the political landscape in North Carolina, was your sense that the hospitals that were being hit by, say, cuts and disproportional share payments, were they sort of explaining the fact that, you know, the, the Medicaid expansion was part of the act to make up for that? Or have they been kind of cowed by the general uh, political tenor of the discussions? Uh, the latter. <laughs> so um, hospitals have not come out strongly um, you know, in favor of Medicaid expansion because essentially they would be coming out in opposition to the existing you know, political leadership that also determines how hospitals are treated under existing Medicaid. Um, or we're now in the process of doing um, a reform to existing Medicaid to adopt uh, a managed care model um, that uh, uh, under which uh, there will be some role for provider-based accountable care type organizations to be Medicaid MCOs. Uh, so hospitals are, are needing to stay on good terms with the legislative leaders in, in these arenas. And so they have been reluctant to, you know, pull out all their firepower <laughs> um, on these issues. And so we haven't heard a lot from hospitals, and it means that we don't really have an organized constituency pushing for this other than, you know, the types of folks who tend not to vote for uh, the current uh, legislative leadership. Throughout your analysis, you used um, Kentucky as, a, as both an example and as, as a comparator to um, some of the work you were doing. And, and by all accounts, if you if you look at just the the numbers uh, insured, um, uh, that's been a stunningly successful expansion. Um, do you have any thoughts uh, about what's gone on there, both uh, during and after the gubernatorial election? Uh, you know, I haven't followed the politics. Uh, it's nice that the Kentucky uh, studies are available. I think they exist because it is such a contested issue there whether or not expansion and 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 the you know the previous administration's uh, embrace of uh, the Affordable Care Act elements uh, was right or wrong, um, and obviously that became a basis for for the um, um, subsequent uh, elections and um, ongoing policy. And it's a nice sort of test case as to whether, if administrations change, is it really politically feasible to uh, claw back expansions that have been uh, that have been put in place. Um, uh, so the larger environment, I'm not that well informed of, but it, what I did find is that because it was a contested area. A, a fair number of good studies had been done, um, and so we had a pretty good sort of microscopic look at that one uh, case in point. Uh, and it happens to be, you know, a southeastern state, um, 
and uh, one that people sort of would intuitively, I think, view as relevant, as more relevant than, let's say, Massachusetts or California. Thanks, Mark. And I now wanted to take us into a second uh, recent publication of yours, looking at private health insurance exchanges for employers. And I thought this was a really interesting um, analysis of a number of elements of, say, getting the exchange experience that you know, now is a, a part of the Obamacare experience for those that are enrolled under the ACA to get some of that shopping into the workplace. So I was wondering if you could just explain to listeners you know, why you became interested in these uh, private health insurance exchanges, um, what the theory is behind them about how they might improve health care, and if there's any uh, impediments to them. I've studied various aspects of health insurance markets and regulation for, you know, a couple of decades now. And, um, you know, there's just all sorts of fascinating sort of backwaters and, you know, nooks and crannies and what have you. Um, and you see ideas come and go in, in different forms. So when you start to hear a flurry of interest in, in discussion of something, you know, I, my ears perk up and, 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 and uh, I, I want to understand more what's going on. Um, and I usually sort of approach these things with a degree of skepticism. Because after a while, it just seems like the same set of ideas are being repackaged. And this started to sound like ideas that had been floated you know, in the 90s and in previous decades um, that didn't work out. And, and, um, but as I looked more into it, I thought, well, this really does have potential. And this might be the propitious time for some you know, significant development. So let me d- describe what it is. Um, it, it's really taking the exchange concept, this, this notion of uh, uh, choosing in a sort of a truly you know, managed competition environment, the type that Alan Intoven, you know, first envisioned where sort of at the margin, the individual is deciding what plan to sign up for um, at what additional cost. So the base cost is fully covered, but the marginal cost is, is, is fully borne by the by the insurance shopper who's picking what they feel like is, is, is the right you know, value for their needs and, and preferences. So if that environment exists where the competition really is focused on, on what's the best value, um, how would that affect the marketplace? Um, and um, how might that competition, you know, drive through to the uh, to the delivery system level? So, I mean, what we want is competition between insurance companies, both to re- reduce the cost of delivering insurance, uh, and, and frankly, that works fairly well because uh, the you know overhead costs are manageable and they're not capped under the medical loss ratio. But to what extent does competition really drive you know efficiencies in the you know the main source of cost, which is the is the delivery of care, and that you know into Tobin's insight was that you know managed competition environment should produce rivalry between you know differentiated provider networks, and, and we haven't seen that. Uh, the large group market tends to select the broadest possible network because uh, it's employer-sponsored benefits, and uh, the idea of benefits is to make your workers happy, which means they can get to the doctor or hospital they want. So the larger the workforce, the, the more comprehensive your network is. The insurance companies want to design their networks to appeal to their largest uh, customers, which are you know again the broad. And uh, that happens to get you know sold also to the um, midsize and, and, and small group employers. And so broad networks means absence of uh, provider level competition for in, in these insurance markets. What we've seen through the Affordable Care Act, though, is that things work dramatically differently. If you really have people making individual choice, there you then have a market where individuals can decide. You know, for my money, uh, I'd rather save fifty or hundred dollars a month or whatever it is, 
and live with more restricted choice of doctors. You know, the hospital that I'm used to going to is covered. Uh, the doctors on my side of town are covered. That's fine with me. I don't care that I can't go, you know, uh, to these other ones uh, if I can save this money, or I do care and I'll pay the extra money. Um, so that uh, choices that uh, trade-offs that individuals are willing to make that employers aren't. So it seemed sort of like a natural extension of the exchange idea, the sort of proof of concept that we've seen, not just in the Affordable Care Act, but also through uh, Medicare, Medicare Advantage. Um, the exchange structure has worked well. Medicare Part D, uh, it's worked well. Um, so uh, it seems about time that you know employers should take another look at this. And so we, we saw a lot of uh, buzz around this idea of employers uh, using exchange structures, giving their workers uh, vouchers, so to speak, in the form of uh, defined contributions. So shifting from a defined benefit structure, I promise this set of benefits, uh, paying 80% of the, of the premium uh, to a defined contribution. Here I give you, a, you know, whatever it is, uh, you know, $500 a month and you shop for what you want. Um, all the same shift we've seen in pension benefits from uh, defined benefits to defined contribution. Uh, there suddenly was a lot of excitement about that occurring in the employer marketplace. Uh, we heard that kind of excitement in previous uh, decades, but there were various sort of uh, structural institution reasons that hadn't uh, taken hold or why it got redirected in a non-productive um, way. And I won't go into that, but now in, in on the heels of sort of market reform from the Affordable Care Act and sort of uh, employers reassessing uh, of the situation, it, it, this felt like uh, an idea that could really take off. And um, so I fortunately got funding to sort of look into it uh, and see what was going on. Um, and and uh, sort of the gist is what I wrote up was, well, first of all, the idea has not caught on. Uh, it's been talked out, you know, it's been a lot more talk than action. Um, employers haven't embraced the idea. And uh, my job is not to look at the business case, but more the public policy implications. So sort of two sides to the question. If it did catch on, would there be new problems that we need to be aware of? Uh, or if it's a good idea not catching on, is there some way in which existing, you know, laws or regulatory structures are, uh, you know, a barrier to, um, uh, to the adoption of private exchanges? And um, just to follow up on one aspect of good idea, bad idea, um, one thing I'm wondering about is I notice in the piece you briefly mentioned potential for regulatory arbitrage or other issues, including, uh, say, sticking uh, skinny policies on the exchange, you know, policies that are very cheap but have very little coverage or, uh, or much less than average. That brought to my mind another concern, perhaps parallel, perhaps just um, the product of free association, uh, which was a concern essentially that what is to keep a system like this seems to be geared to helping the very, say, healthy young employees versus, say, the um, older, sicker ones, I would guess, because I guess it's a way for the younger, healthier to convert, say, a fixed subsidy into cash, whereas the people that, say, might be more vulnerable would have to pay more for their plans. But maybe I'm missing something here. Is your sense, Mark, that essentially the the real rationale here is to sort of uh, differentiate price on the basis of, say, 
I'm willing to drive 50 miles to see a gastroenterologist, whereas others are, you know, have a greater preference to save time and want to have the gastroenterologist that's, you know, right one mile away or things like that? Well, so that I went into with that kind of suspicion. I mean, the answer is yes, more of the favorable story, that it, it, it really is a, being used in a way to drive choices over value, not just in terms of the network, which is one example, but basically, you know, what level of coverage, bronze, silver, gold, um, you know, the, the level of cost sharing. So those, the, the intent is to drive those decisions from a internalized cost perspective you know what 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 at the margin what is the cost difference in those choices and not to play games with risk selection but that's in contrast within the past in the in the past when we've seen these exchange structures emerge they've been very much about regulatory circumvention uh, trying to produce more risk selection than uh, the regulatory rules uh, meant to allow so they were ways of taking otherwise independent businesses and combining them into a self-funded structure that then tries to avoid insurance regulation uh, you know inappropriately and those things then went bankrupt um, or they were ways of um, trying to let um, say small groups that were in a community 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 rated regime opt out of that into a, a more um, risk rated um, uh, regime if you know, they had younger, healthier workers. Um, and so this previous attempts to exploit these regulatory gradients uh, were sort of the main basis for the sort of business case in the past. But um, I didn't detect any of that in this sort of round of interest. Um, none of the promoters of these private exchanges were uh, extolling those sorts of advantages. Uh, people who were, you know, the benefits consultants that were analyzing these things weren't weren't um, promoting those uh, sort of uh, effects either. And in Frankly, part, partly that's because uh, the regulatory landscape has been reformed. Uh, these opportunities for fictitious groups and uh, non-bona fide associations and things like that have been have been. We've had enough experience with that that the the policy wonks who wrote the detailed language of the uh, Affordable Care Act sort of basically cut off those routes or states are more attuned to that. And uh, so there's a whole, you know, last 20 years of experience of things called MIWAs and association health plans and what have you that we won't get go into that. But the sort of the ACA version of that would be skinny plans where there was thought that somehow you could avoid the employer mandate by just putting together some uh, minimal set of benefits uh, was being promoted by some uh, some benefits consultants and brokers, but um, that's not um, you know what what, the, what these exchanges are trying to do. So that was comforting to see that they're really not an avenue towards um, regulatory circumvention or um, inappropriate use of market boundaries or or even frankly employers trying to get out of the business of sponsoring uh, benefits. I mean, one of the thoughts was if you allow employers to move to a defined contribution, they'll just pick a very very low number to start with and not raise it consistent with inflation and and then eventually just drop their sponsorship altogether. But um, that's also not happening. So none of the sort of plausible negatives uh, seem threatening. So my advice to regulators is don't, you know, worry about any looming threats from this. Um, uh, more relevant would be whether there are current things in the regulatory environment that are standing in the way of what might otherwise be a good development. If these did catch on, Mark, do you think there would be any concern about anti-competitive behaviors on the exchanges, the potential, for example, to use exchanges for price signaling or, or other pranks like that? Uh, well, that's quite possible. And you don't have a, you know, a government agency or quasi-government agency like that run our public exchanges that's 
set, you know, where, where the conditions for quali- qualified health plans are um, set by, um, you know, government regulation. On the other hand, this is a market that would be very much geared to the most sophisticated purchasers, large employers that have, uh, you know, professional uh, benefit staff, uh, you know, in their HR departments and that, uh, you know, hire, you know, these mega international benefit consulting firms, the Aons and the Towers Hewitt and what have you, uh, to advise them. And and so the only concern I heard expressed uh, would be um, if there's sort of a conflict of interest in terms of the fee structure where, let's say, the firms advising the employers are also themselves sponsoring exchanges or getting, you know, quiet kickbacks in the form of commissions or something. Um, and there's a little bit of rumbling about that, but... Um, for the most part, again, their clients are so sophisticated they know to look out for those things, and so I, I don't really see see that. I, I think, in a sense, what the exchanges really have the potential to intensify competition by taking in, instead of the choice being made by the employer for the group, you really force insurers to compete, uh, you know, more at a retail level for for each subscriber, and 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 insurers are reluctant to do that. Uh, they have to be sort of forced, you know, kicking and screaming uh, into this uh, multi-carrier exchange environment. Um, and the government can do it because it says that's the only way you can get subsidized uh, enrollees. But um, in the group market, what you need is a very large employer saying, if you want to retain our, um, you know, any of our enrollment, you've got to allow some competitors to um, offer their products uh, uh, on the same shelf. So I wanted to bring us into your uh, the last uh, piece of yours we'll discuss today, Mark, which is the uh, piece in the Houston Law Review on assessing the Affordable Care Act. And I thought this piece was, uh, and to sort of segue from our discussion of the private health insurance exchanges to that perspective, um, I wanted to look at perhaps why insurers are robust enough to handle these uh, private health exchanges and start competing a little bit more. And to start that conversation, I was wondering if you could describe Richard Epstein's prediction about how the Affordable Care Act would affect insurers and what actually transpired in 2009 as the ACA was being drafted and over the next six years. He said with near mathematical certainty, there would be partial collapse of the insurance market. You know, to Richard Epstein and and, and, and other sort of more true market, free market adherents, you know, any attempt to regulate uh, corporate profits um, would just, you know, drive away investment and capital and initiative and, 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 and just be you know, the worst possible idea. And and so if that were done, you would see the worst kind of collapse. Uh, maybe it's just, you know, law of nature. <laughs> if you take away the uh, rewards, then you take away the incentives and and uh, everybody goes somewhere else. Well, you know, it hasn't happened. I mean, it just shows you that, you know, someone is brilliant and well-informed as Richard Epstein could be just, you know, completely wrong in a prediction. Uh, I mean, we're all wrong in predictions. Uh, but uh, I, I, you know, uh, I took that as, a, as an example of, you know, even apart from the more sort of partisan-based, clearly ill-informed assertions about the Affordable Care Act being a job-killing law when, you know, all the data shows to the contrary, <laughs> you know, it, 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 even sober and reflective policy analysts uh, completely mis- misanticipated uh, consequences. So, you know, keep our minds open. And, and, and I think I gave at least some credit to the potential on the other side, that folks who thought that uh, this would produce all sorts of wonderful 
things haven't, uh, you know, the the, the hopeful hoped for benefits haven't been fully achieved um, uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, and so let's, you know, just try to take a deep breath and look calmly at the, at the evidence. So on on the question of regulating profits through the minimum medical loss ratios, because the loss ratios that's the percentage of premiums that insurers are required to spend on actual medical costs. Uh, if not, they rebate the difference between the legislated minimum and and what they actually spent, which is a minimum of 80% for individual small group insurance and 85% for large group, leaving either 15 or 20% for administrative overhead or, or profits. Those were set at very reasonable levels, at levels that were quite comfortable in terms of market existing market norms. So they weren't set at a level that threatened to make business impossible for the leading insurers. Um, and um, um, they... Um, because insurers were already doing business within those norms, it sort of got rid of the riffraff. It left the major players in place, and and uh, you know, and the stock market is the most sensitive to medical loss ratios. Uh, I mean, stock prices vary immediately based on insurers' reports about their sort of quarterly loss ratios. They're followed as as closely as uh, you know, uh, sales figures from you know manufacturing firms or whatever. And you can just see in the stock prices for the industry that um, investors felt uh, there was no problem at all here because the stock uh, stock value of health health insurance companies went up uh, at a quite healthy clip following the Affordable Care Act. So I think the th- point there is that the the actual levels that were chosen were quite comfortable ones. The interpretation of that part of the law, I think this is emblematic of how CMS and and IRS and the other agencies have dealt with the ACA rollout. They've been very attentive to legitimate concerns by the industry uh, as to what is workable and what isn't. Uh, and they've the agencies have taken a light hand in terms of any number of points of interpretation with regard to the exchanges and with regard to other parts of, of the law. Uh, essential health benefits, they took a very hands-off approach, um, for instance, saying what essential health benefits is basically whatever the, you know, the best-selling policy is in the market. And unless locally you want to say something different. So we're open to whatever you want to say. So that kind of approach, I think, really uh, kept the industry engaged, made the uh, insurers much more willing to participate in the exchanges. And um, you see that reflected in the example of the medical loss ratios, but I think that sort of resonates throughout a lot of the details of ACA implementation. You uh, you set up a rigorous sort of uh, question in the article that you want to try and answer, which is sort of contrasting the plausible goals of the ACA with actual achievement. And in setting those uh, that list of plausible goals, uh, it seemed to me that you considerably downplayed any of the cost bending goals and features of the ACA in the what two or three years probably since you 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 finally pressed enter on this article. Do you think do you have any reason to revisit that or uh, do you think that was the correct approach? There's a lot of verbiage that we want to bend the cost curve and this will, you know, I mean, I, f- I forget, it's a Gruber or somebody who said that every good cost cutting idea out there is, you know, on the books is in this law. <laughs> so suggesting that sort of the law does everything you could possibly do to, to bend the cost curve. Uh, but in fact, that stuff is there only on a sort of a, a exploratory basis or a pilot basis or uh, only for Medicare and not for the private market or, you know, uh, in other respects, only in very limited ways. Um, in my assessment of things, uh, the way in which you know the politics were lined up is to start you know where the, the Clinton reform effort failed because it tried to take on coverage and costs at the same time and you you know you threaten too many you know too many vested interests if you take on the cost uh, containment piece of it. So at the end of the day all the vested interests either supported the law, 
or decided not to oppose it. So, you know, hospitals, doctors, pharma, and, and, and that's because the administration said, you know, we'll deal with costs later. Let's just get coverage done. So I, I think that's a, an accurate assessment. And therefore, when people credit the law with having uh, reduce the rate of inflation. I, I'm I'm a bit skeptical, and so I think there the defenders sort of have maybe overclaimed. Um, so I don't think I've reassessed that. I, I do think in the couple of years that have occurred that uh, questions about how well the market reforms are, are working, I think, are still up for debate. I think that. Um, uh, you know, we're seeing in the marketplace some troubling signs of, of uh, high loss ratios, uh, larger medical claims than we're priced for, pricing that then tries to catch up with those losses, which then makes the marketplace less attractive for some carriers. So some carriers are leaving and not, not very many new ones are joining. We're also seeing consolidation among carriers. And so that at least poses the concern that the that the exchanges would become you know less competitive and if that's part of a natural sort of seeking an equilibrium a new set of market rules the people are sort of trying to set the right course through those new market dynamics and uh, there were some mid-course adjustments things might smooth out in the future that's one scenario but the other is you know the death spiral and and are we seeing the early stages of that so i I do think that is still an open question um i I think that in a different political environment uh congress could look at this and say well you know we need to take another look at the individual mandate and the penalties maybe it shouldn't just be 695 dollars maybe it should be something more than that or whatever the number is or uh other elements that might relate to adverse selection and and um, or just taking more of a public relations approach that says, all right, everybody, it's your duty to get signed up, and if you don't, you're going to get penalized, and uh, you know that's what Massachusetts did, and and it was successful, but politically, that's not viable. So, with the uh, sort of harsh political environment that you know where uh, you know many legislators and regulators want the law to fail because <laughs> uh, they've always said it's a bad law and they want events to prove them true, uh, so they're not willing to put in the mid-course fixes that we. We've seen for other, you know, major reforms like Medicare, Medicare Advantage, Medicare Modernization Act. So in that environment, it's quite possible that things will start to move off the rails. But I, I, I'm still cautiously optimistic that this is just mid-course correction and that we're settling into a sustainable equilibrium type of scenario. But I, I'll have to admit that um, we don't know the final outcome yet. And that was this week's The Week in Health Law. A very special thank you to Professor Hall for joining us. Great fun having you with us, Mark. Great to do this and uh, terrific work you guys are doing. We post our show notes at twill.com. If you have a moment, please go to iTunes and rate the show. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank, where are you hanging out this week? Please contact me at HealthPI on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. <laughs> <laughs>